The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Who knows that tomorrow's Friday <laughs> is Burgett. Burgett Jelaine has been practicing Buddhist meditation since 1986. She coordinates and teaches at the San Jose Sangha. As a graduate of the Sati Center Chaplaincy Program, she conducts weddings, funerals, and other ceremonies. In her psychotherapy practice, she uses mindfulness with psychotherapeutic exploration to help clients break free of old patterns of behavior. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all. It's been a while since I've been here on Thursday evening, so it's very nice to return. And I know you've had some series recently. Andrea did the five precepts, right? Jim and Maria and Susan did Greed, Hayden, Delusion. Um, so I'm going to follow up tonight with what's known as the eight winds or the vicissitudes of life. And what's that? What are the eight winds? Jack Cornfield quotes the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. So these are the winds, so-called, because these are the things that batter us about, that toss us to and fro, and can disturb our equanimity, our balance, our sense of peacefulness and contentment. Sharon Salzberg says, These eight winds constantly arise and pass away beyond our control. And this is important. These winds are part of life. They are part of the ceaselessly changing condition of life. And therefore, we don't need to take them personally. They happen. And we suffer, sometimes enormously, if we identify with them but we don't have to. They arise and pass away beyond our control. So they're also called or known as the vicissitudes of life. What does vicissitude mean? Well, it means change either in a predictable progression like night to day or uh, Monday to Tuesday or spring to summer, or in an unpredictable way, just the changes of life that are part of life, are normal, are to be expected, and our job is to learn to accept them, to ride them, not identify with them, and to let go, to let go of our attachment, to let go of our 
identity with these ceaselessly changing conditions. They are just the conditions of life. Praise, blame, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, and disrepute. They come and go. They're part of life. No need to identify with them. But of course we do. (laughs) We take them personally. We take them as having some meaning. You know, if if there's pleasure, oh, then we're doing things right. <laughs> How easy it is to think that, right? If there's pain, uh-oh, must be something wrong. I'm, I'm doing something wrong. This, this shouldn't be. If I was doing it right, then it would be pleasure and not pain. We identify in so many ways with these changing conditions. But that's how we suffer. We don't need to identify with them. They are not who we are. They are conditions that arise, have a time, and pass away. Easier said than done, I know. But very important to keep in mind. And then to use our awareness to see where we get caught where we cling, or where we get uh, too strongly identified with either of the polarities. We learn that happiness, our happiness, as Sylvia Borstein says, is an inside job. It comes from our peaceful heart, um, not from external circumstances. That's a big one to get because if we're so accustomed to thinking that something out there is what makes us happy. And we learn through this practice that it's not. Out there changes all the time, up and down. Many years ago, I took a training where they talked about life as being up and down and all around really addressing just that. That's life. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, sometimes it's all around. Recognizing that then, we don't have to identify with all these changing circumstances. We can keep our heart, um, our mind, peaceful and calm. And then happiness resides within us, not externally. So Sharon Salzberg offers us a loving-kindness attitude. She says, May we all accept things as they are. May we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. May we have the courage to face change and adversity. Oftentimes, we don't like change very well. We like things to stay the same. I know I certainly can get caught in that trap. Things are pretty good, just like they are. Why should we change them? But change, as we know, is part of life. Nothing is permanent. Everything changes. And when we resist that, we suffer. 
when we accept that and actually embrace it, actually open to it, there's many possibilities and we don't suffer. So let's look at each of these pairs individually. And the first one, they, they are listed uh, in different orders at different times. I chose to do pleasure pain first because pleasure and pain, the flip side of each other, um, are so, are, are the heart of what the Buddha taught. That when we grasp pleasure and we push away pain, this creates suffering. Either way, either one, grasping onto the pleasure or pushing away the pain creates our suffering. Sukha and dukkha. Sukha being the pleasure, dukkha being the displeasure or the suffering or the unhappiness. We can also think of it in terms of pleasant or unpleasant. The feeling tone of things. You may have heard the Pali word Vedana. What the feeling tone is. And this can be a very important uh, place for us to put our awareness. If we can see moment to moment, oh, this is pleasant, oh, this is unpleasant, we can catch our reaction. We can see the, the tendency to go with the pleasure and to resist the unpleasant. So that can be a very important point to watch. What is pleasant and what is unpleasant? And throughout the day, throughout our lives, we probably find that most every moment has something of pleasure or something unpleasant. So the Dhammapada has much to say about these winds in different ways. And I'll read a couple of them. This is the uh, translation that Gil did. Very beautifully done and a wonderful book to have. So it says, Whoever lives focused on the pleasant, senses unguarded, Immoderate with food, lazy and sluggish, will be overpowered by Mara. Mara being um, uh, the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. As a weak tree is bent in the wind. Whoever lives focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, moderate with food, faithful and diligent, will not be overpowered by Mara. As a stone mountain is unmoved by the wind. So it can be a little confusing when it says focused on the unpleasant. I don't think what's meant is that we should go around looking for the unpleasant or going around looking for the negative or the difficult. What I think rather it means seeing both. Not not seeing only the pleasant or not grabbing only for the pleasant but seeing both pleasant and unpleasant um, and mountain this, this uh, metaphor is used a lot 
The mountain is like equanimity. The mountain stays still. The winds come and go. They can blow, but they don't disturb the mountain. And so very often our sitting or our, our composure is likened to a mountain. So we sit, sit and the winds blow back and forth, but we're not tossed about. We sit firmly. And then, don't get entangled with what you long for or dislike. Not seeing what you long for is suffering. So also is seeing what you dislike. So that the flip sides, grasping to what we want or what we like, pushing away, not seeing what we don't like. And Sharon Salzberg says, The Buddha taught that we can feel pleasure fully, yet without craving or clinging, without defining it as our ultimate happiness. We can feel painfully without condemning or hating it. And we can experience neutral events by being fully present so that they are not just fill-in times until something more exciting comes along. This non-reactivity is the state of equanimity and it leads us into freedom. So freedom is allowing for the mystery of things as they are. Allowing things to be just as they are. Giving up the struggle to control. You know, so often we're confused and we think that by controlling things, that that leads to our happiness and to our confidence. But what we find is it's just the opposite. When we let go of the control, when we let go of the struggle and open to exactly what is, this is the freedom and this is where we build our confidence. So it seems paradoxical. It seems uh, going against our intuition that to open, to just allow things to be as they are, gives us freedom and gives us confidence, rather than the tightening, the trying to control, the struggle. So pleasure pain is also known sometimes as joy and sorrow, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And I'd like to read a a bit from the prophet, Galil Gabran, who uh, was a very, very wise man, a poet who lived um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, 
and wrote some very wise words. He wasn't Buddhist, but I think you'll find what he says very much fits with our Buddhist understanding. So he says, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, nay, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, Remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Verily you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you standstill and balanced. So not so much difference between pleasure and pain or joy and sorrow when we look very closely. And we look very deeply. Not so different. Two sides of the same coin. So then the second pair. Praise and blame. This can be a big one for many of us. Happens to be the one that catches me the most. (laughs) Uh, But again, you know, flip sides of the same coin. If we're attached to praise or blame or praise and blame, then what we're doing is getting our worth, our okayness from out here. We're dependent on other people rather than on ourselves. And so when there's praise, oh, we feel good. You know, things are going well, I'm okay. And when there's blame or sometimes just lack of praise, then, oh, maybe I'm not so good. Maybe that wasn't so good. Whatever. This flip-flop. And it can be enormously painful, as probably all of you know. It's probably created uh, one of the ways that has created the most suffering in my life. To be attached either way. It reminds me of what the Dalai Lama said about blame. You know, if somebody criticizes him or doesn't like what he said or what he's done, he said, I look at my intention. And if my intention is pure, then I don't worry about someone else, what someone else says or someone else's criticism. 
if we see clearly, then we realize some people will like us, some will not. Some people will praise us, some people will not. Some people will think what we did is wonderful. Some people will think it's terrible. And that may change from time to time. So if we are dependent on somebody else, somebody out here, saying that this is good or this is not so good, then we're going to be on this emotional roller coaster, aren't we? And again, a quote from the Dhammapada that that says it so well. Ancient is this saying. It is not just of today. They find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking moderately. No one in this world is not found at fault. No person can be found who has been, is, or will be only criticized or only praised. We're all going to get both. And I love the saying that if you're not being criticized, you're not doing enough. You're not out there. You're staying too safe. Living life too too closely. That helps me sometimes to remember if I'm not being criticized, I'm not doing enough. Then it makes... Actually, we can use criticism. We can use it to learn from, to grow by. And that's not to say that every criticism we get is valuable or that we should believe every criticism but sometimes it is and so if we're open to it then we can see is this useful or is it not it's not that we don't want to listen to the criticism or the blame we don't want to take it personally we don't want to get hooked by it our freedom comes in not being attached to either one. There was a point in my life where um, I recognized that what I thought was not being attached to either one was really not being attached to blame, but being very attached to praise. (laughs) And then when I saw that, oh, oh, it's neither what. It's not that we get to be attached to the praise, but not the blame. No. The freedom lies in not being attached to either one, not taking ourselves or what anyone says too terribly seriously. So um, a couple of examples come to mind. Many of you or some of you may know Ajahn Amro, a very wonderful um, monk here. He's from England but lives up at Abayagiri. And I remember him telling the story one time that when he was practicing under Ajahn Chah and, um, you know, the monks are expected to teach from time to time. So Ajahn Chah would have them give these long, long discourses, like all night long. Well, you know, nobody can talk intelligently or, or animatedly or interestingly all night long. 
And so, you know, he'd go on and on and on. And, of course, one by one, the other monks would get up and leave. And this was Ajahn Chah's way of helping Ajahn Amro and others to get over that sense of being attached to what the other monks were thinking. You know, so easy. I mean, I do it. I look out. Oh, yeah, that person's nodding. Oh, yeah, that person. Oh, good. I'm doing okay. (laughs) Imagine if I had to talk all night. Um, after an hour, you know, probably there'd be some yawns and some of you would get up and leave. And that's very good training for not being attached <laughs> to what someone else thinks. Or I remember uh, reading Robert Hall saying that Robert Hall is a, a very respected Vipassana teacher. And apparently one time uh, doing a workshop or giving a presentation um, whoever it was across the hall, Ram Doss or Jack or <laughs> somebody, everybody went to that workshop and nobody came to his. <laughs> Wonderful place to practice. Um, it happened to me back in March where I did a day long in San Jose. It was wonderful. Uh, Jim Bronson did it with me and more people came than we expected. Everybody um, got something out of it and thought it was very good. Oh, wow, this is nice, you know. Two or three weeks later, I was teaching a class on Monday night. One person came. (laughs) And I thought, well, there it is, right? (laughs) So what we want to do is be that mountain. Build our equanimity. Equanimity is that place of unperturbability unshakable stillness, uh, unflappable, that place of self-confidence, but not, not um, uh, self-consciousness, not being so aware of ourselves, trusting, but letting go. So the third pair that of gain and loss. And we probably all know this one quite well also. Often we tend to think of it in terms of money or material goods. Um, things like, uh, you know, uh, gaining great wealth or losing it, as many people did during the dot-com boom and then the bust, right? where many people were quite wealthy on paper and suddenly lost it all. Quite difficult for many, many people who were too strongly attached or identified. So something like the stock market or the economy is really a place for us to practice, right? Where we can see how attached we are to the outcome and really be tossed about. But, as we remember, our fortune comes and goes. And most of all, perhaps, doesn't say anything about who we are. It might say something about how wisely we invested, It might say something about, I don't know, some other choice we made, some other decision. 
But that's not who we are unless we identify with it. So remembering that gain and loss are circumstances. They're not who we are. So in thinking about it, I realize that there are many other things that we can gain and lose. Not just material goods or not just wealth. But how about something like weight? Right? And we can be very attached to that. We gain weight that may be good or that may be not so good. If we get very attached or identify with that, we can suffer. We can be most unhappy. We could even develop an eating disorder. But again, that's not who we are. That's an external circumstance. It's not who we are as people. It might be health. We might gain good health. And again, if we identify too strongly with that, then if that circumstance changes and we lose that good health, which will happen to all of us eventually, then we suffer. I can imagine this for myself. I happen to be one who's quite healthy. I've never had a serious illness, never had a broken bone except a toe, maybe. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty identified with being healthy. And I can imagine that if that circumstance changes, if I become ill, if I get a diagnosis, that could be quite startling for me. And so I try to keep that in mind. I try to recognize, remember, that if I live long enough, Undoubtedly, I will. I will at some point develop some illness. This body that has served me so well will not stay in this wonderful health forever. I happen to have good genes. (laughs) My mother is almost 89, and except for Alzheimer's, she's quite healthy. (laughs) Um, So the chances are good that I will remain quite healthy. But, of course, there's no guarantee. That could change. And if I'm too strongly identified or too attached to being healthy, then when that changes, I will suffer greatly. Another way that we can be attached, I think, to gain or loss can be that of attention. We enjoy having somebody's attention or maybe many people's attention and how is it if we lose that or if that changes so again I can use myself as an example Um, I think of my daughter when she is quite attentive and calls me regularly and seems concerned and you know um, confides in me and I can think, oh, we have a good relationship. This is really nice. I might even think, well, I did a good job raising her. Look at how how nice she is to me. And then something in her life changes. You know, she gets a boyfriend. (laughs) Or she gets really busy. Something changes. 
and then I don't hear from her so much. And maybe she's not so attentive. Maybe she doesn't confide in me so much. Boy, then the mind can start going. And if I don't catch it, I can end up not only suffering, but, well, I'm not going to call her. Well, you know, um, maybe I wasn't such a good mother. On and on and on. Which I have done. Only to have her call at some point and, you know, um, be telling me what's going on. And then I think, oh, <laughs> didn't have anything to do with me at all. <laughs> she was busy or whatever. So we can watch for the places in our lives where, where there is gain and loss. And how do we handle that? How do we view it? How do we see it? Do we let it blow us about, toss us about? Do we hold a little equanimity, a little uh, mountain-like pose? And then the last of the pairs is that of fame and disrepute. And the flip sides. So we can see this so clearly in uh, our politicians, perhaps. (laughs) in um, movie stars or someone uh, who uh, gets fame for a period of time and enjoys it. And then either, you know, our fickle public <laughs> lets go of that and moves on to something else, or that person makes a mistake, says something, you know, either knowingly or unknowingly, Um, that doesn't sit well, and suddenly they're in disrepute. Happens over and over, right? And if they're too identified with that, with their fame, they can really don't. People have been known to commit suicide because that particular circumstance changed. They went from fame to either non-fame or disrepute. But it happens. It happens all the time. And we get caught if we buy into either one. If we, you know, buy into the fame, then we're hooked. Then when the lack of fame or the disrepute comes, we crash, we suffer. The trick is to enjoy the upside, enjoy the fame while we have it, knowing that it will change, knowing that it won't last, and that it's not who we are. Maybe this is most important, that it's not who we are. It's a circumstance. It's a condition. It will not last. It hardly ever lasts forever for anybody. Um, It will change. So seeing that, recognizing that it will change, seeing our attachment if it's there, we can let go. And when the disrepute comes or the lack of fame, whatever, when things change, we don't have to be so tossed about. So, we begin to see 
these polarities, these opposites, if you will, as each one being defined by the other. So our gain is defined by loss. Our loss is defined by our gain. Our praise is, de- is defined by blame. The blame is defined by praise. And we see that they are just the ups and downs of life. They're just the swings of life. And maybe most importantly, we don't have to take them so personally. We don't have to identify with them. They are ultimately not who we are. They are circumstances. They're just external circumstances. They don't say anything about who we are. That's maybe the hard one to get, but it's so true. They are just circumstances. Who we are at the core doesn't change because we make money or lose money or because we do well here and don't do well there. We can see it as the impermanence of life, basic Buddhist understanding. Whatever arises will pass away. Whatever is born will die. just how it is. And when we see that, we can learn to be content. To be content with what we have. To be content with circumstances as they are. Rejoice in whatever life gives you. Crave nothing else. Know that whatever you have been given is for your own highest good. So that's our challenge, to accept what we have been given and at least use it for our highest good. So, are there some comments, questions, discussion? You mean some circumstance with my daughter? Mm-hmm. How do I how do I experience or see some some circumstance? Do you mean with her or between us or with her? Like she does something that I don't approve of. Is that is that what you, is that the kind of thing you mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um well, certainly, of course, my daughter's 37. She has done things that, not so much that I didn't approve of, but that I didn't care for, you know. And it has given me the opportunity to look closely. Um, partly because of my psychotherapy training and partly maybe just because of who I am. I used to put a great deal of stock in, um, in what parents did in 
the effect of parenting on children. And um, to the, I think, almost to the exclusion of so many other things. And I have come to view that very differently, partly from my own experience, partly from other people's experience. And so I can see that, yes, I had a part. I played a part, maybe even a very large part in my daughter's upbringing. But I wasn't the only thing. I wasn't the only influence on her. There's genetics, number one. There's her father, number two. There's um, the extended family, my parents, his parents. There's school and her friends at school. There's society at large. There's what was going on in the world. There are many, many circumstances, many causes um, that come into play that mold, help to mold who my daughter is. So, in a way, at some point I saw it as being pretty arrogant to think that I (laughs) was the only influence on her. I certainly wasn't. I may have been a big one, both uh, to her benefit and maybe to her detriment. Um, But there are many, many other things that have influenced her life. Um, So I no longer take it so personally. And what... You know, I may have done that wasn't so skillful. I acknowledge and apologize and let go. We all have done unskillful things. Um, I look back. I wasn't nearly as smart as I thought I was raising her. And, nevertheless, I did a, a pretty good job. Does that answer? Mm-hmm. Um, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, could you say that equanimity is acceptance and uh, humility combined with um, the realization of being a spiritual being and having the human experience and knowing that as a human being, you know, there's life and death, and then there's all the difference of what's within, without, and what comes through you. Um, like you were saying, all the, you know, first you were saying that not who we are is not everything that is outside of us. And then you said that, well, who we are is what's within us. Um, but that awareness of being a human being, of being spiritual, being born spiritual, going through the human condition, is kind of an equanimity of knowing that that's just the way it is in life, like the Dalai Lama, what he's going through. Even though he's reached the state of Maha-Ati, um, you know, as a Bodhisattva, he's still going through all the other things that all of us are going through, politically, and you know, a homelessness, um, Children being sold off to uh, sex exploitation, abuse, uh, oppression, suppression, all the different things that all human beings go through, even though he he is at that highest level of enlightenment 
and reincarnated, yet he's doing it with a state of complete peace. That, well, for my, for me, I couldn't be. <laughs> I could be, but I choose not to be exactly. You know, um, like that. I find that, that sometimes equanimity is standing up and in applying influence and force um, in a society where um, there is um, a certain amount of control. Otherwise, there would be no order. Uh, all that you say may be very valid. Um, the definition of equanimity is much more simple. Equanimity is, in the Tibetan tradition, they say, meeting all things equally. So it's not being swayed by these polarities. It's not being um, knocked off balance by any of these winds or by any of the conditions of our lives. So uh, the Dalai Lama is a great example, I think, of equanimity. Um, he, there have been many external circumstances, as you suggest, in his life and in his culture. Um, and he remains unflappable. He remains unshakable. And he is, I think, a beautiful example of equanimity. My understanding is that he suggested that he might resign if the violence didn't stop and resign as the political leader, not as the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is something he can't resign. <laughs> That's in the Tibetan tradition. He is the reincarnated, reincarnated Dalai Lama. But I think what he was saying was he felt so strongly about nonviolence and about not allowing the violence to continue, that um, that he suggested he might resign if it didn't stop. Yeah. Other comments, questions, maybe even examples. Mm -hmm. um, I find myself thinking that people about Come join us. <laughs>
Shall I just speak louder? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Every time I come in here, I get very calm. So I'm not. Uh-huh. Um, but the the idea of accepting what life has to give to you and rejoicing in that in that moment seems at times almost counterintuitive to this idea. For example, when you um, take a spouse or you're in a serious relationship. And this idea of attachment, you love this person and you're planning a future with them, but at the same time, you have to be aware that that could end and how does that affect how deeply you get invested in this person. I think you want some deep investment, but at the same time, when we talk about everything passing and just being prepared for that and know it could come, a condition that mm-hmm. occurs. I guess I get confused with how, how do you go deeper with someone knowing those kinds of things, if, if that makes sense. Yes, it does very much. Um, and it's a very, very excellent point or question. Uh, there's a Vipassana teacher, Eric Kolbig, who, when he marries couples, he there's a Uh, a paragraph or so that he says and he talks about how they will be separated either by death or by divorce he really um, you know puts it right out there and asks in the ceremony asks the couple to confront this it's a paradox in a way because what you say may, you may think that's intuitive, you know, that, well, if I'm going to lose this person, then I'm going to withhold a little bit. We all have done that, and we do it in lots of situations, not just with a spouse, but in lots of areas, right? But what we find out is that that doesn't protect us. It doesn't protect us one bit. And in the meantime, <laughs> we have lost the joy of that deeper relationship that we could have had. So um, the truth is, opening, opening to the depth and to the knowing that it will end. That's how it is. In, in, and that doesn't mean that when it ends, we go, oh, well, I knew it would end anyway. Oh, say la vie, that's how it is. That's not it at all. There may be enormous sadness. There may be many other emotions. But when we truly recognize and accept this will end, and we know that. There's the sadness, but there's not all the suffering. I recently had an experience of this. I, I lost my dog yeah, almost four weeks ago. Boy, did I find out how attached I was. <laughs> I'm looking at Maureen because I used to always bring her on Thursday nights, and then I'd take her for a walk, you know. 
I had some sadness today. Oh, I'm going up there on Thursday and Luce won't be with me. So anyway, um, I was enormously sad when uh, she, as it turns out, had cancer. I didn't know that, but two days before she died, I found out. And when I was talking to the vet after I hung up, I literally wailed. I surprised myself. I cried so hard I didn't hear the phone ring. <laughs> I found out later my brother had called and I didn't even hear the phone. But at some point what I realized was there was no story. In other words, I wasn't saying this shouldn't be, this is awful, life is unfair, I didn't have her long enough, you know, how come I didn't find out earlier. There was none of that. It was pure, unadulterated grief. <laughs> and I wailed for an hour, probably. And then I took a walk. And thank goodness she wasn't home. She was at the bed. <laughs> so by the time I went to get her, I had some calm again. Um, I miss her enormously. She was, she was always with me. And so, but there still is no story. So there isn't suffering. And, and I think this is a good example of how pain is part of life. Losing my dog, losing a spouse, losing, you know, whatever is part of life. And there can be enormous grief without suffering, without any story about it. And in fact, I think, the, um, the pain, the grief, goes away faster when it's fully expressed, when it's fully felt. I have a friend who lost her dog four years ago, and she told me not too long ago she's still not over it. Now, we didn't go into what over it means. Um, and that may be a difference. You know, when there's a story or when there's a sense that this shouldn't be happening. Um, you know, it could be the same with any of these four polarities. If we think it shouldn't be that way, that means life's unfair. That means something's wrong, either with life or with us. Or any of the number of things we can come up with, then we suffer. But if there isn't that, that attachment or that story then there can be, sure, there can be um, sadness at loss. And, in fact, we want to experience whatever there is fully because that's how we come through to the other side. So we don't want to deny the sadness. We don't want to deny whatever, anger if it's there or whatever. Um, but we don't have to be tossed about. We don't have to be, I was going to say, devastated by it. Does that, does that make sense? Very helpful. Thank you. Good. Yes. So I identify very strongly with... Um, sure. So I, identi- I, I identify really... Like this? Good, good. <laughs> so I identify really strongly with his praise and blame that you're talking about, and... My question to you is, so a therapist and I are going to maybe consider starting 
on mindfulness just support group for women who suffer from postpartum or perinatal mood disorders because we both had gone through it and we just found insight meditation to be incredible in our recovery. So I thought it was just fear that was holding me back. But I see now that there's a lot of fear behind praise and blame. (laughs) Who am I to do this? Or the opposite, which is, yes, I've learned so much. Let me help these women. (laughs) And it's, you know, I don't know, maybe you can offer something, having taught for so long, that how do you work with that? Well, (laughs) I think just what you said, we work with it. Um, one time not so long ago there was a nun that came to our San Jose group and she was talking about uh, perhaps starting a center down, uh, down in the desert down near Palm Desert and somebody asked her about the money you know where would the money come from or how would it be supported or what if they started it and then you know the money didn't come and I never will forget her answer, and I think it's relevant. She said, our job is to teach what we know and not to worry about the Donna or the money or the number of people that come. And I thought, wow, yes, that's right. So like for you, you share what you know, and you don't worry. Those for whom it's beneficial, they'll get it. And others won't. But that's probably not about you. It's probably more about the other person. Most often with praise and blame, it's about the other person. That might be easier to see with the blame than it is with the praise. But it's, it's actually also true about praise. If we say something that resonates with somebody or that's something they like, then, oh, wow, what a great Dharma talk, you know? Or what a great group, what a great presentation. Well, really all that saying is, whatever I said really resonated with them. I didn't do that, (laughs) right? That's circumstances. So you've had the experience. You offer what was helpful to you and... Let go. You know, we talk about not being attached to the outcome, letting go of the outcome. So we offer what we know and don't worry about, don't be attached to what the outcome is. And when we are, we see that. That's part of the mindfulness practice. (laughs) Okay. So I see it's about five after nine. Probably we should bring this to... A formal close, and if others of you have questions, I'll be around for a little bit. Feel free to come up. Okay, so I thank you for your attention. Good to be with you. Good night.